It's June 9th, 2021, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Welcome back, everyone. Sorry, we took a, a little bit of an extra break there. I, I know we've we've gone from trying to record every week to every two weeks, and unfortunately now it's three weeks. <laughs> it's become three weeks, but that was not intentional. I was talking with a friend in Germany, Ryan, who is another architect. He's He's been there for a few years now, and I brought up the topic of today's podcast and he mentioned something and it sort of threw a wrench into what we were thinking of and I think maybe maybe changed the direction a little bit of what the podcast was intending to be but this is one of the international series podcasts so so this is going to be the next to the last one about the international series and of course the whole idea about the international series was that we weren't really able to travel so let's talk about the places we'd like to get to but we can't necessarily get to so since travel is starting to open up a little bit we think we can we can probably funnel out this series but this this is the next to the last the last one's going to be about the HOA systems because they are uniquely american and we all love them so much so we will be talking about that and and how that sort of plays against more international locations but today what we wanted to talk about was subways and public transportation around the world because subways and infrastructure usually tell important stories about the larger communities that they serve. And, and this is where Ryan sort of threw the wrench into the, into the works because he brought up, does our public transportation reflect people's attitudes about what it's used for, about what that transportation is used for? Does the system itself, does the architecture itself reflect that? And so Ryan, thank you so much for for tossing that hand grenade into my lap. Happy to toss it back into Matthew's lap, and I think he's done a great job with with really figuring out what that means or, or figuring out a broader picture about the subway systems and public transportation. So we're going to just kick off and get going, and I think, Matthew, we're going to start where? We're going to start with Moscow, I think? Yeah, well, we're going we're gonna to visit Moscow to see what communist-built palaces for the people have to say about the social safety net, and we'll look at the dominance of mass transit in places like London, Berlin, and Japan, and see how that can be traced back to World War II, and we'll end with what the future holds for subway systems in this time for climate change and social and economic inequality. So why are we looking at subway and mass transit on this international episode? It's because America took a vastly different approach to its public infrastructure following World War II than the rest of the world. And by examining what other countries and cultures did right, we may be able to apply some of those strategies in the U.S. as politicians begin to talk about investing in the next generation of infrastructure. And looking internationally, we'll also be able to see that subways are a good barometer for the health of the social safety net. But more on that later. And more on that later, because we couldn't be the architecture geeks without actually talking a little bit about architecture. And, and this is what sort of kicked this off for me, was this whole idea of how we perceive public transportation and, and how we relate to it, I think, architecturally. And, and, it, and we'll talk about primarily, really, London and Berlin, because these were two cities that were really at the epicenter of World War II. And they're both 
great examples of modern subway systems. And I think as as travelers, we tend to view these public transportation systems. If you're if you're from the U.S. and you're in London, or if you're in Berlin or Munich or or even Paris, this would even apply to Paris. I think we tend to look at the subways as simply as a means of getting from point A to point B. We we don't see anything beyond that, that, that we are simply, we're trying to catch this train at this time because I have to go there and we get off the train, they tell us to mind the gap in London and you hop up the escalator, go up the stairs and boom, you're out to wherever you, it is you want to go. So we don't pay attention to what's in between and there is an architecture there and not always a good architecture, but there is an architecture there that, that we often don't stop to see. And I, I am just as guilty of this in London, especially when, when James was there and I was visiting that Again, it was very much point A to point B. I took the train in from the airport all the way into London, <laughs> which was a very long ride. But by the time I got there, all I wanted to do was get out and get outside and find James's office and and, and go to actually go to sleep. But we don't think about that. And there, and there are really some unique unique places. But but London, interestingly enough, is the architecture tends to be on the outside of the station. That that there isn't much on the interior to really look at. There's a few exceptions. There's there's a Canary Wharf station, there's King's Cross, there's even the um, Notting Hill Gate station, which actually the platform feels more like a, a regular train platform, but it has that, that same these these big sort of barn like structure and these over you know these giant arches. So it has that feel to it. But for the most part, most of these stations, your architecture happens on the outside. So it's the building that you're going into to get into the subway that has more of the, <laughs> more of the architecture. And and the same thing for the U-Bahn. I was talking with a friend also. So Ryan's in Germany, and I, I posed this question to him, but I also have another friend, Inda, who is in Germany as well. He's a photographer. And I asked him, I, I said, do you ever notice the architecture in the subway stations and the U-Bahn stations? And his comment to me was that sometimes you can't help but notice the architecture. You don't always, but sometimes you can't help. And he he brought up the Marienplatz station in Munich because you get off the train. He said you can't not notice it. And if you look at the pictures, you will be amazed because it is quite literally orange. The all the tile <laughs> on the platform walls is this bright, bright orange, and it's hard not to miss. I mean, it's it's how do you not notice it? And when they did the extension. They continue that in the extension, and the extension itself is actually has an architectural feel to it. It's a more sinuous kind of shape. But again, it's this really bright orange, so so you can't help but notice. And Ryan had the same thing about train stations, that some, sometimes you get off and you can't help but notice the architecture. But I think generally, we don't, we don't tend to notice that because we are determined to go from point A to point B. And that, that's all the, all the public transportation is for us, is just a means to get to where we want to go. While we could go on and on about the design of the stations, it's obvious that both cities have world-class subway systems, with the London Underground obviously being the more internationally famous of the two. But the other thing that these two cities have in common is that they were primary targets for very successful and prolific bombing campaigns during World War II. And it was actually this common historical thread that led to the development of the current high-quality subway and mass transit that we know today. During the war, overland traffic was risky, not to mention that the government had confiscated all motor vehicles for the war effort. So mass transit, specifically subways, became the mode of transportation. 
then after the war ended, there was so much to rebuild on the surface that people just continued taking trains and subways over cars. The government at the time encouraged this even more with subway and rail investment and expansion and, and their expansion and with tax structures that were weighted against cars and gasoline. This factor really shaped the transportation habits of an entire generation of people. And that's how these cities ended up with the excellent systems that we have today. And, uh, and another interesting little tidbit here, the, the pattern was constant wherever there was heavy bombing during World War II. If you looked at the top cities affected by bombing and, and compare them with the cities that have top-notch subways these days, you'll find a consistent link there. Think London, Berlin, Tokyo, Moscow, all major targets, all with notable modern subways these days that serve hundreds of millions of people. I think I think Moscow serves six billion people a year. Oh, that's crazy. Well, I I, I know, for example, I know the Water, Waterloo Station in London, they have almost 100 million entries and exits per year. So think about that. That's how much traffic they're moving through that one station. And it's just astounding to think that what had been a major bombing target would have a system that would work that well. But but, th- but the other thing, too, is, is a little history here. London started their subway system back in the mid-1800s. I think the first one was like 1865. So their subway system has been around in one form or another since then, to the point that Londoners would tend to shelter in the subway stations during bombings because it was deep enough underground they felt safe, even, even though the the government did not want them to initially, and they did discourage that. People were still flocking to those places. So it has a history, and uh, it's and I, and I think you said too that, that Berlin was was pretty much the same way that people were using these systems as a as a means to protect themselves. But here you are, all this time later, and they really have become these incredible, incredible transit systems and moving hundreds of millions of people a year. And it's just it's just mind boggling in that sense that that. That to have gone from the mid 1800s to where we are now, and gone through world wars, and these systems are still there, and people are still using them the way they're using them, I think reflects a lot on on what the governments are willing to invest, or what those governments were willing to invest, and how they were willing to utilize existing systems to make sure that the country continued to evolve and continued to grow. This, this small little history, le- international history lesson is is really important here, especially at, uh, especially at home, because it's a really a study in contrast. After World War II, the U.S. chose a different route. We chose to invest in car infrastructure rather than the electric public mass transit that the rest of the world was developing. And look where it has really taken us. We, we've got an enormous tax base subsidizing the oil industry, and, and now we're having to play catch-up across a broad variety of industries to modernize our infrastructure and and cut our global carbon emissions. Mass transit can play a big part in that effort, but there has to be that investment there. In, in a study updated in 2021, a research program found that communities that invest in public transit reduce the nation's carbon emissions by 63 million metric tons, and that public transit's overall effects have saved the U.S. 6 billion gallons of gas annually. The, those, no, those numbers are nothing to sneeze at. 
when it comes to climate change, but it does go to show you the the scale of the problem. It it took destruction on a massive scale to revol- revolutionize mass transit abroad, and now here in the U.S., we just have a short window of time to mitigate the worst effects of climate change and and mass transit. Mass transit can be a good can be a, can be a good starting point. I mean, guess we better start soon. <laughs> Maybe so, and and. And we could talk about, I mean, we, we, you know, this is, I guess, the geeky part really of the podcast because we really are talking about this impact that it has on climate change, the impact it has on how we use gasoline and, and how much pollution we're putting out to the air. But one of the things that, that, and I guess a great example of this would be thinking about the Moscow uh, International, you know, their subway system, the Moscow metro system, because this is a system that serves around 9 million people a day, which makes it one of the busiest metro systems in the world. So 9 million people. That's 9 million people who aren't using cars, 9 million people who aren't using a bus. I mean, it, it really, I think, points to that idea that, that you can get people around, that there's this option to do it, and that, that it, we can use transit as a way to sort of help mitigate what we're talking about with with all the carbon emissions and with pollution and whatnot. But the, but the great thing is so so the great thing for me on this actually is is the stations themselves because right after the the, the revolution and I guess it was, I think sometime in the mid 30s if I, if I remember correctly and don't shoot me if I don't but they started out this idea of building what they were calling palaces for the people. So you had these metro stations that were just absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, it, it, it makes the, the, the subway in New York look like a broom closet. <laughs> it really does. It's, it is just that magnificent. And, and you're looking at these subway platforms that look like they belong in one of the imperial palaces in Russia. It's that level of architecture. They came up with this idea, and from the from the I think it was thirties to about the mid fifties, they were building these stations. And and give you an idea about how many stations there are, two hundred twelve stations in the Moscow Metro, and out of those, forty four of them are what are looked at as cultural monuments. And, and by comparison, put it this way: Dallas has sixty five light rail stations, and if you've been in one of them, you know they're nothing to really look at. So it really is. <laughs> <laughs> really is quite something to to look at the architecture of the system. But that architecture also represents a significant investment on behalf of the government. And, and again, there's value in understanding that there's a history behind this network. In 1923, the Moscow City Council actually formed the first design committees to begin the process of designing and constructing the initial subway lines. Now, this is at the height of the Communist Party's strength and ideology, long before Stalin had twisted and sort of corrupted it into the authoritarian regime that we think of and we sort of see today. But because of that timing, the fantastic architecture was was really a reflection of the ideology of the time. And the theory of it was embodied in the new subway stations that were being built, hence the the branding of the of the, these stations as being palaces of the people, and, and they reflected that. There was there's one one station that's dedicated to to the Ukraine, and it has all these frescoes and images of life in Ukraine, and and that was one of those things that that again, it's a palace for the people. But the architecture also really expresses this pure, uncorrupted idea of communism that we belong to a single cohesive society with no elites, and where everyone's needs were equally met. 
and rapid transportation around the city was worth investment to help really achieve that ideal. So you so you end up with these just really, really incredible places. And and that like I said, that ended sometime in the mid fifties when they when the metro station suddenly became very standardized. And all I, I, I can think of is the the Soviet industrial complex and. Uh, you, you look at some of the cars and think, "Wow, that's just not the best thing to look at." So, so yeah, but you but you have these you have these incredible, incredible subway stations that were really meant to reflect this idea that that transportation is for the people and this should be a a monument to them, and and they were. And while we're in no way advocating for a socialist revolution or a communist government, we, we would like to reframe the conversation about subways as less of an investment in traditional infrastructure and more of an investment in the social safety net. In, in the same way that federal unemployment benefits have really helped millions of people survived the pandemic here in the U.S., an expansion and upgrade of subways and other forms of mass transit would represent an additional lifeline that can help bridge increasingly large social and economic inequalities in this country. But how do subways and other mass transit help ease this inequality? Consider the finding from a 2017 study out of USC People who own cars have access to 30 times the number of jobs within a 30-minute commute compared to people who relied solely on public transportation. This problem is especially acute for people working odd hours or on on shifts that are time-sensitive. If you rely on public transportation and have to wait 15 to 20 minutes for a subway or train or or your ride to even show up, that's at least an extra hour every day needed to sustain what is likely to be a lower wage job because you've got 15 to 20 minutes to wait for your ride at the beginning, then I'm almost positive you got it you have you're not going to be working at the same place that immediately right you get off the train so then you've got another 10 or 15 minutes walk wherever you walk or ride wherever you need to go after that that's 30 minutes one way adds up to at least an hour of of time every day that you spend doing that and and since time is money you're getting hit in the wallet twice for not being able to afford a car once because that extra hour could be spent working and earning money and the second time because your future earning potential is severely curbed due to the lack of opportunities within a reasonable commute. So the subways and light rails really become this investment in what is a more level playing field. And I think that's, in some ways, that that's what Moscow and the communist government at the time was really looking for, was, was how do we create these palaces for the people that celebrate them and provide them a way to get throughout the city effectively and get to where they need to go. And and so there is that aspect to the whole transit rail system, that it is its own safety net. Interesting little tidbit about, about the Moscow and London Underground as we're wrapping up. The, the people who helped design the London Underground were actually hired away by Moscow, by the Soviet government, to help design the Moscow metro station. Obviously, London was doing something right because... Moscow came along and said, "Oh, by the way, can can we borrow you guys? Because we need to figure <laughs> figure this out over here." So yeah, we don't often look at 
public transportation where we're going as a thing, other, other than to get from point A to point B. But there's much more to it. And it's it's about how we view the systems and how we view their purpose. And at the same time, we should probably take a step back and look at how these buildings were created and how these stations were created and what they really look like. Because there is some really great architecture. On top of all of this infrastructure, there's really some really great architecture that if you stop for a second before you go into the station and look, you'll notice this is this is really something. And and I'm not counting, of course, as as both Ryan and Inda mentioned that there's architecture that you can't avoid looking at. I mean this this it's you get these stations and it's just wow. But even the everyday stations, stop and take a minute and look. See what you're going into before you get there because it's it's really, really quite something. And hopefully as as International travel starts to open back up. You'll have that opportunity, and and you'll remember this and go back. And I, I guess Matthew, I guess you guys aren't really going anywhere internationally for a while, probably. No, the twins kind of make that difficult, at least for the first few years. <laughs> I I would imagine. Um, well, and, and you would typically go to Brazil, and that's not the not the place to be at. I'm going to guess at least for another year or so. Yeah, no, we be, because the only way to get there is by plane. We we we're kind of we're just gonna st- stick around here for the, for the time being. Well, and then I, I suspect a lot of people still will. But if you do get that that opportunity opportunity to travel overseas, you know, stop and take a look and see what's going on, and remember that that the those transit systems are there are really for for the public good and and for providing opportunities for people, and it's something that we could certainly take a good lesson from. And, and there's this idea that we shouldn't be spending this much on infrastructure, but at the same time, look at these cities that did and see how they flourished. And maybe maybe they have the right idea. And maybe that's something we need to look at going forward. But enough preaching this for now. We'll, we'll <laughs> let you guys go on about your day. We hope you're all doing well. Of course, if you want to reach me, you can reach me, Larry, at Spotted Dog Architecture or at Spotted Dog Arch on Instagram and Twitter. You, you, you can find the podcast on Instagram at Arch Geeks Podcast, and you can find our website at architecturegeeks.com. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.